Chapter Twelve, Part One of the Sword of Antietam. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lee Smalley. The Sword of Antietam by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter Twelve, Through the Bluegrass, Part One. Dick's horse had had a good rest, and he was fighting for his head before they were clear of the outskirts of Pendleton. When the road emerged once more into the deep woods, the boy gave him the rein. It was well past midnight now, and he wished to reach the army before dawn. Soon the great horse was galloping, and Dick felt exhilaration as the cool air of early October rushed past. The heat in both east and west had been so long and intense that year that the coming of autumn was full of tonic. Yet the uncommon dryness, the least rainy summer and autumn in two generations, still prevailed. The hoofs of Dick's horse left a cloud of dust behind him. The leaves of the trees were falling already, rustling dryly as they fell. Brooks that were old friends of his and that he had never known to go dry before were merely chains of yellow pools in a shallow bed. He watered his horse at one or two of the creeks that still flowed in good volume, and then went on again, sometimes at a gallop. He passed but one horseman, a farmer who evidently had taken an unusually early start for a mill, as a sack of corn lay across his saddle behind him. Dick nodded, but the farmer stared open-mouthed at the youth in the blue uniform who flew past him. Dick never looked back, and by dawn he was with the army. He found Colonel Winchester taking breakfast under the thin shade of an oak, and joined him. "'What did you find, Dick?' asked the colonel, striving to hide the note of anxiety in his voice. "'I found all right at the house, but I did not see mother. What had become of her? I learned from a friend that, in order to be out of the path of the army or of prowling bands, she had gone to relatives of ours in Danville. Then I came away.' "'She did well,' said Colonel Winchester. "'The rebels are concentrating about Lexington, but the battle, I think, will take place far south of that city.' Before the day was old, they heard news that changed their opinion for the time at least. A scout brought news that a division of the Confederate army was much nearer than Lexington. In fact, that it was at Frankfurt, the capital of the state. And the news was heightened in interest by the statement that the division was there to assist in the inauguration of a Confederate government of the state, so little of which the Confederate army held. Colonel Winchester at once applied to General Buell for permission for a few officers like himself, natives of Kentucky and familiar with the region, to ride forward and see what the enemy was really doing. Dick was present at the interview, and it was characteristic. "'If you leave, what of your regiment, Colonel Winchester?' said General Buell. "'I shall certainly rejoin it in time for battle. Suppose the enemy should prevent you. He cannot do so. I remember you at Shiloh. You did good work there.' Thank you, sir. And this lad, Lieutenant Mason, he has also done well, but he is young. I can vouch for him, sir. Then take twenty of your bravest and most intelligent men and ride toward Frankfurt. It may be that we shall have to take a part in this inauguration, which I hear is scheduled for tomorrow. It may be so, sir, said Colonel Winchester, returning General Buell's grim smile. Then he and Dick saluted and withdrew but it did not take the colonel long to make his preparations. Among his twenty men, all were natives of Kentucky except Warner, Pennington, and Sergeant Whitley. Two were from Frankfurt itself, and they were confident that they could approach through the hills with comparative security, 
the little capital nestling in its little valley. They rode rapidly, and by nightfall drew near to the rough Benson Hills, which suddenly shooting up in a beautiful rolling country, hem in the capital. Although it was now the third day of October, the little party marked anew the extreme dryness and the shrunken condition of everything. It was all the more remarkable, as no region in the world is better watered than Kentucky, with many great rivers, more small ones, and innumerable creeks and brooks. There are few points in the state where a man can be more than a mile from running water. The dryness impressed Dick. They had dust here, as they had had it in Virginia. But there it was trampled up by great armies. Here it was raised by their own little party, and as the October winds swept across the dry fields, it filled their eyes with particles. Yet it was one of the finest regions of the world, underlaid with vitalizing limestone, a land where the grass grows thick and long and does not die even in winter. If one were superstitious, said Dick, he could think it was a punishment sent upon us all for fighting so much and for killing so many men about questions that lots of us don't understand and that at least could have been settled in some other way. It's easy enough to imagine it so, said Warner in his precise way. But after all, despite the reasons against it, here we are fighting and killing one another with a persistence that has never been surpassed. It's a perfectly simple question in mathematics. Let X equal the anger of the South. Let Y equal the anger of the North. Let 10 equal the percentage of reason, 100, of course, being the whole. Then you have X plus Y plus 10 equaling 100. The anger of the two sections is consequently X plus Y, equaling 100 minus 10, or 90. When anger constitutes 90%, what chance has reason, which is only 10%, or one-ninth of anger? No chance at all, replied Dick. That has already been proved without the aid of algebra. Here is a man in a cornfield signaling to us. I wonder what he wants. As Dick spoke, Colonel Winchester, who had already noticed the man, gave an order to stop. The stranger, bent and knotted by hard work on the farm, hurried toward them. He leaned against the fence a moment, gasping for breath, and then said, "'You're Union men, ain't you? It's no disguise?' "'We're Union men, and it's no disguise that we're wearing, Malachy White. I've seen you several times in Frankfurt, selling hay.' The farmer, who had climbed upon the fence and who was sitting on the top rail, hands on his knees, stared at him open-mouthed. "'You've got my name right?' Malachy White it is, he said. So enough, but I don't know yours. Pears to me, however, that there's something familiar about you. Maybe it's the way you throw back your shoulders and look a fella square in the eyes. Colonel Winchester smiled. No man is insensible to a compliment, which is obviously spontaneous. I spent a night once at your house, Mr. White, he said. I was going to Frankfurt on horseback. I was overtaken at dusk by a storm, and I reached your place just in time. I remember that I slept on a mighty soft feather bed and ate a splendid breakfast in the morning. Malachy White was not insensible to compliments either. He smiled, and the smile which merely showed his middle front teeth at first gradually broadened until it showed all of them. Then it rippled and stretched in little waves until it stopped somewhere near his ears. Dick regarded him with delight. It was the broadest and finest smile that he had seen in many a long month. "'Now I know you,' said Malachy White, looking intently at the colonel. "'I ain't as strong on faces as some people, though I reckon I'm right strong on em too, but I'm powerful strong on recollectin' hearin', that is, the voice and the trick of it. 
It was four years ago, when you stopped at my house, you had a curious trick of pronouncing ours when they wasn't no ours. You'd say door and our when everybody knowed it was doa and our. But I don't hold it again ye for not knowing how to pronounce them words. Your name is Arthur Winchester. As right as right can be, said Colonel Winchester, reaching over and giving him a hearty hand. I'm a colonel in the Union Army now, and these are my officers and men. What was it you wanted to tell us? Not to ride on further. It ain't more than fifteen miles to Frankfurt. The place is plumb full of the Johnnies. I seed em there myself. Kirby Smith, and a smart general he is too, is there, and so's Bragg, whom I don't know much about. They's as thick as black bees in a patch, and they's all getting ready for a grand march and display tomorrow when they swear in the new southern governor, Mr. Hawes. They've got out scouts too, Colonel, and if you go on you'll run right square into em and be took, which I allow you don't want to happen, no how. No, Malachy, I don't, nor do any of us, but we're going on and we don't mean to be taken. Most of the men know this country well. Two of them, in fact, were born in Frankfurt. Then maybe you can look out for yourselves, being as you are Kentuckians. I'm mighty strong for the Union myself, but a lot of them officers that came down from the North appear to turn into powerful fools when they get away from home, knowing nothing about the country and not willing to learn always walking into traps. I guess they never missed a single trap the rebels have planted. Sometimes I've been so mad about it that I felt like quitting being a Yank and turning to a Johnny. But somehow I've never been able to make up my mind to go again my principles. Is General Grant leading you? No, General Buell. I'm sorry of that. General Buell, from all I hear, is a good fighter, but slow. Liable to get thar and hit like all tarnation when it's a little mite too late. He's one of our own Kentuckians, and I won't say anything agin him. Not a word, Colonel. Don't think that. But I've been powerful took with this fellow Grant. I ain't any soldier myself, but I like the tales I hear about him. When a fellow hits him, he hits back harder. Then the fellow comes back with another, harder still, and then Grant up and hits him a wallop that you hear a mile, and so on and so on. You're right, Malachy. I was with him at Donaldson and Shiloh, and that's the way he did. I reckon it's the right way. Is it true, Colonel, that he taps the barrel? Taps the barrel? What do you mean, Malachy? White put his hands hollowed out like a scoop to his mouth and turned up his face. I see, said Colonel Winchester, and I'm glad to say no, Malachy. If he takes anything, he takes water, just like the rest of us. Powerful glad to hear it, but it ain't easy to get too much good water this year. Never knowed such a dry season before, and I was fifty-two years old three weeks and one day ago yesterday. Thank you, Malachy, for your warning. We'll be doubly careful because of it, and I hope that this war is over to share your fine hospitality once more. You'll surely be welcome, and every man and boy with you will be welcome, too. Further on, about four hundred yards, you'll come to a path leading into the woods. You take that path, Colonel. It'll be sundown soon, and you follow it through the night. The two men shook hands again, and then the soldiers rode on at a brisk trot. Malachy White sat on the fence, looking at them from under the brim of his old straw hat, until they came to the path that he had indicated, 
and disappeared in the woods. Then he sighed and walked back slowly to his house in the cornfield. Malachy White had no education, but he had much judgment, and he was a philosopher. But Dick and the others rode on through the forest, penetrating into the high and rough hills which were sparsely inhabited. The nights, as it was now October, were cool, despite the heat and dust of the day, and they rode in a grateful silence. It was more than an hour after dark when Powell, one of the Frankfurters, spoke. We can hit the old town by midnight easy enough, he said. Unless they've stretched pretty wide lines of pickets, I can lead you, sir, within four hundred yards of Frankfurt, where you can stay under cover yourself and look right down into it. I guess by this good moonlight I could point out old Bragg himself, if he should be up and walking around the streets. That suits us, Powell, said Colonel Winchester. You and May lead the way. May was the other Frankfurter, and they took the task eagerly. They were about to look down upon home after an absence of more than a year, a year that was more than a normal ten. They were both young, not over twenty, and after a while they turned out of the path and led into the deep woods. "'It's open forest through here, no underbrush, Colonel,' said Powell, "'and it makes easy riding. "'Besides, about a mile on, there's a creek running down to the Kentucky "'that will have deep water in it, no matter how dry the season has been. "'Tom May and I have swum in it many a time, "'and I reckon our horses need water, Colonel. "'So they do, and so do we. "'We'll stop a bit at this creek of yours, Powell.' "'The creek was all that the two Frankfurt lads had claimed for it, it was two feet deep, clear, cold and swift, shadowed by great primeval trees. Men and horses drank eagerly, and at last Colonel Winchester, feeling that there was neither danger nor the need of hurry, permitted them to undress and take a quick bath, which was a heavenly relief and stimulant, allowing them to get clear of the dust and dirt of the day. "'It's a beauty of a creek,' said Powell to Dick. "'About a half-mile further down the stream is a tremendous tree on which is cut with a penknife,' Dan'l Boone killed a bar here, June 26, 1781. I found it myself, and I cut away enough of the bark growth with a penknife for it to show clearly. I imagine the great Daniel and Simon Kenton and Harrod and the rest killed lots of bears in these hills. I'd go and see that inscription in the morning, said Dick, if I didn't have a bit of war on my hands. Maybe you'll have a chance later on but I'm feeling bully after this cold bath. Dick, I came into the creek weighing 225 pounds, 150 pounds of human being, and 75 pounds of dust and dirt. I'm back to 150 now. Besides, I was 50 years old when I entered the stream, and I've returned to 20. That just about describes me, too, but the colonel is whistling for us to come. Rush your jacket on and jump for your horse. They had stayed about a half hour at the creek, and about two o'clock in the morning, Powell and May led them through a dense wood to the edge of a high hill. "'There's Frankfurt below you,' said May, in a voice that trembled. The night was brilliant, almost like day, and they saw the little city clustered along the banks of the Kentucky, which flowed a dark ribbon of blue. Their powerful glasses brought out everything distinctly. They saw the old state house, its trees, and in the open spaces, tents standing by the dozens and scores. It was the division of Kirby Smith that occupied the town, and Bragg himself had made it a triumphant entry. Dick wondered which house sheltered him. It was undoubtedly that of some prominent citizen proud of the honor. "'Isn't it the snuggest and sweetest little place you ever saw?' said May. "'Lend me your glasses a minute, please, Dick.' Dick handed them to him, and May took a long look. 
Dick noticed that the glasses remained directed toward a house among some trees near the river. "'You're looking at your home, are you not?' he asked. "'I surely am. It's that cottage among the oaks. It's bigger than it looks from here. Front porch and back porch, too. You go from the back porch straight down to the river. I've swum across the Kentucky there at night many and many a time. My father and mother are sure to be there now, staying inside with the doors closed, because they're red-hot for the Union. Farther up the street, the low red brick house with the iron fence around the yard is Jim Powell's home. You don't mind letting Jim have a look through the glasses, do you? Of course not. The glasses were handed in turn to Powell, who, as May had done, took a long, long look. He made no comment when he gave the glasses back to Dick, merely saying, Thank you but Dick knew that Powell was deeply moved. "'It may be, lads,' said Colonel Winchester, "'that you will be able to enter your homes by the front doors in a day or two. Evidently the Southerners intend to make it a big day tomorrow when they inaugurate Hawes, their governor. A governor who's a governor only when he is surrounded by an army won't be much of a governor,' said Pennington. "'This state refused to secede, and I guess that stands.' "'Beyond a doubt it does,' said Colonel Winchester. But they've made great preparations, nevertheless. There are Confederate flags on the Capitol and the buildings back of it, and I see scaffolding for seats outside. Are there other places from which we can get good looks, lads? Plenty of them. May and Powell responded together, and they led them from hill to hill, all covered with dense forest. Several times they saw southern sentinels on the slopes near the edge of the woods, but May and Powell knew the ground so thoroughly that they were always able to keep the little troops under cover without interfering with their own scouting operations. End of chapter 12, part 1 Recording by Lee Smalley